Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm particularly pleased today to welcome Stephen Corey to the Sustainability Agenda. Stephen has been working now for more than 50 years in the area of Indigenous peoples' rights and is the former CEO of Survival International, a London-based charity that campaigns for the rights of uncontacted peoples, Indigenous and tribal peoples. So thank you very much, Stephen, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about COP15 and get your views and critique and analysis and generally thoughts about that um, and your, what your expectations were and, and what, what some of the big outcomes are. Uh, before we do that, maybe if you can just tell us a little bit about your own background, Stephen, and what you do now. Sure. Well, I started work with Survival International, which is... Uh, organization which works for tribal people's rights. I started work with them in 1972. I became the director in 12 years later, and I retired in 2021. So that's um, basically nearly 50 years working with survival for tribal people's rights. Uh, my own particular in interest and involvement in the um, in the whole conservation agenda um, dates back a, a, a good thirty plus years, and have uh, I've been pushing since then for a recognition for fundamentally tribal people's land rights. This question is now wider than tribal people's; it also includes uh, many local communities, um, indigenous peoples, and so on and so forth. So I have, uh, I suppose, to an extent, gradually began to realize that the conservation agenda was not necessarily a good thing as regards tribal, indigenous, local people's rights. And, um, and the more I've been looking into that, the more I've realized it's actually very generally very harmful and has been extremely destructive of those rights and not much good for the environment either come to that yes well we will talk about that and uh, i'm looking forward to getting your uh, perspective on some of the the, the big uh the 30 by 30 some of the big outcomes uh of cop 15 uh generally like to try and get a little bit of a feeling for the lay of the land at the beginning and i'm just wondering you know, it's a difficult time uh, in, in many domains, uh, the Ukrainian-Russian war, the uh, inflation, the climate change, uh, I could go on. I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind, what keeps you awake, Stephen? Well, uh, I'm, I'm a good sleeper, so, so, so actually nothing keeps me awake. But... but, but uh, I think the thing uh, I think that the thing which which is most apparent to me now and uh, ultimately most destructive is the level of hypocrisy and uh, it's often called greenwashing and, and and this kind of thing the the pretense that certain so-called solutions are going to solve these major world problems and the solutions which are advanced are uh, are largely rubbish, to, to be quite uh, frank and blunt about it. And uh, 
pretty much always involves somebody making a lot of money out of it. So I think as a broad position, I think that these problems are not going to be solved by the solutions which uh, are offered routinely to the public. And I think that is uh, more than tragic. I think it's criminal, actually. It's interesting you, you say that. Um, it's a very broad statement. Uh, how is it possible that various actors, many, many actors, all together are coming up with solutions that you think aren't real solutions and are just money-making uh, uh, plans? I think, well, I think the first thing we've got to remember is that because a lot of people believe something, um, that's never made it right. You, you look at the history of uh, belief, uh, particularly in, in, the, in the societies which have written about it for the last couple of thousand years, and uh, you come across uh, innumerable uh, firmly held beliefs widely believed, which um, are nonsense. I suppose in the 20th century, the most, the clearest example of this is the hold that um, Nazism foisted on the German and indeed on other nations derived from a eugenic, uh, so-called scientific eugenic view that certain races were superior to others. This was widely believed as science, Many people were completely convinced about it. Indeed, many people still are, actually. Uh, so the fact that lots of people believe something. Yes. Your primary focus, when, when you're talking about those solutions, you're focusing, uh, or can we at least discuss, through the lens of conservation, because that's been a big part of what the, your concerns been. Yeah, well, I, I started realizing um, several decades ago that the whole concept of conservation as it's reflected in the creation of protected areas is very little to do with the environment and very much to do with a certain political ideology. And if you look at the origin of protected areas, the, 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 the most recent direct origin is in the 1860s in the United States when the first national parks were made uh, and where the indigenous inhabitants were unceremoniously kicked out or killed from these areas and uh, they were set aside for the enjoyment of uh, the settler, the white settler society, in spite of the fact that the indigenous peoples had been looking after these areas actively and managing them in an environmental sense for many thousands of years. Now that, that model was then pushed onto Africa in the uh, 20th century and uh, and it's indeed that model which has created this idea that you can uh, set aside protected areas and this is going to solve lots of problems uh, including climate change e even pandemics was put forward as, as, um, as something which could be solved by these protected areas um, and of course none of this is actually True. So there's two factors at work here. One is that the protected areas are, are, don't solve the problems they set out to uh, solve, and we can go into that in more detail. But the other is the, the, the destruction they wreak on the peoples who actually have been solving locally exactly the same problems. So you have areas where... Uh, tribal and indigenous peoples have lived in an area, managed it, enhanced its biodiversity. We now know that a huge proportion of the Earth's biodiversity is actually on indigenous peoples' land. The figure of 80% is, is normally given, though it's very difficult actually to calculate uh, what you mean by biodiversity. But So they're very good at, uh, at protecting biodiversity, and of course they haven't been the ones who've created the climate crisis and yet they are the ones who are excluded from these very same uh, prote protected areas. So what's the point of the yeah. protected areas? What are, they, what, what are they actually doing? In whose benefit? In whose benefit? And if you look at them, you look at the famous ones, um, particularly in Africa, 
what you find is that basically this is to do with uh, uh, money, money coming through initially tourism, sometimes hunting concessions, um, mining. There's mining in in, in protected areas. Uh, one of the first cases um, I was involved in actively uh, succeeding in stopping was concerned the Central Kalahari Game Reserve in Botswana, where 30 years ago the government decided the local Bushmen people should be evicted. And this was presented as something to do with uh, helping the uh, animals and, and, and the environment. Of course, the Bushmen people had been there for countless thousands of years, actually. No one knows exactly how long or ever will. And uh, in, in fact, one of the key reasons which became apparent was that they, they wanted to open a diamond mine on their territory, which, which they subsequently did, although it was denied at the time. So, And, and when we looked at the uh, map of the Central Kalahari Game Reserve and then got map of the mining exploration and mining concessions, you could see a very close overlay. So a lot of these areas are being protected basically for commercial reasons. The new kid on the block here is, yeah. is carbon trading. And, and that is a, a, obviously a, a, a billion-dollar industry now, which is using protected areas often pretty spuriously um, to, to claim that they are somehow or other uh, offsetting carbon emissions um, most of this is nonsense, and it's to do with money. The other obvious thing which um, is related to money is tourism. So what you do in these protected areas is kick out the local people, saying uh, people shouldn't live there, and then build an infrastructure for tourists. And, of course, the tourist money uh, doesn't revert to the local people. It, it goes to international operators. So very high-end tourism in some of these uh, so-called uh, conservancies in East Africa, for instance, the minimum stay will come, will push you back several tens of thousands of dollars, literally. Uh, stay for four nights, uh, uh, I don't know, ten people. Uh, you, you, you pay more if you bring in your own pilot. And the minimum stay will cost you, I can't remember the exact figure, 20 or 30,000 American dollars. So this is, this is not... Uh, giving access to these areas to ordinary people. It's, it's reserving them for uh, an elite, a rich elite. Yeah. Now, I, I'd like to talk in a moment about some of the more of these projects that you've seen on the ground because this protected area idea is, uh, or maybe ideology, is central uh, to trends right now in conservation and uh, looking at biodiversity and indeed the outcome COP15. But maybe just before we go there, can you just tell us a little bit about the situation uh, facing Indigenous peoples and um, Survival International looks after their interests and argues for their, their interests and so forth. How would you characterise what you see happening there? Yes, it, it's very easy, actually. It, it's, it's all to do with who um, has control over the, the land. And the history of indigenous peoples, you look particularly and very obviously at, uh, at the Americas, at North America, the indigenous, the so-called Indian reserves in the United States, or you look at Australia uh, or uh, New Zealand. What you see is a settler society coming in and stealing the local people's lands. And the Land rights for indigenous peoples has always been the key to their oppression, their destruction, and indeed to uh, what can be done in some cases to, um, to, to, to recognize the rights which they are supposed to have under basic and fundamental human rights. So it, it, ultimately, it's a complex area. It involves hundreds of millions of people, but it comes down almost always to land. And by land, I would include territory, sometimes, uh, you know, rivers, lakes, uh, sea areas. So it's to do with control over territory. And the nation states of the world don't like uh, the indigenous peoples having any control over their own territory and uh, it, it, it go to war if necessary to prevent them having it. 
let's remember the history of the, the United States is a history of armed invasion. The country is built on the theft of indigenous people's lands and then the importing of uh, African labor to uh, e exploit those, the resources on those lands. Um, and that is a characteristic which you can find uh, commonly. Let's, let's remember that in the African case, uh, more or less the entire continent was taken over by uh, Euro the European imperial nations and uh, very gradually through the 20th century, uh, countries have secured their uh, political independence from those nations. However, the if you look at how conservation comes in, particularly you say you look at the founding of WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, or the World Wildlife Fund, as it's still called in the States. This was founded around about the time of Kenyan independence, and it was clearly recognized by the uh, WWF and the people who founded it that, as far as they were concerned, the big danger in Kenyan independence was that Kenyans, Africans, were going to get back control over their land. So what they did was found WWF and push for protected areas, national parks uh, and other protected areas uh, in Kenya, fundamentally to deprive uh, local Africans of control over their lands. So they, they, they brought in these national parks and protected areas, kicked out the local people, um, stopped them going back in, uh, certainly to hunt, there was some of these people who were subsistence hunters, uh, having manageably hunted and sustainably hunted the area for uh, as long as anyone can remember, or for that matter, pastoralists moving their herds over these pasture lands. They kicked them out, stopped all the hunting, stopped the pastoralists, the herders from coming in, and then set up, as I say, a tourist infrastructure so that tourists could come in. And this was ostensibly about protecting the animals. But in fact, of course, the, the, the iconic animals in Africa have lived alongside the Africans uh, for uh, as long as the human species has evolved. So they weren't essentially at threat from local Africans. The thing which decimated the elephant and the lion and, and so forth populations was uh, hunting by colonial settlers uh, on a vast scale, as indeed uh, was in, the, in, in North America, in the United States, when the settlers killed uh, millions of the bison. That's awful. And um, what, what you're saying and what your research shows is that, and, and the work on the ground, is these ideas which are, have been around for a long time and, as you say, are, are, are colonial and, uh, you know, deep in history, are, are continuing to, these ideas are at the heart of approaches to conservation today. Yes, ab absolutely. They're, they're the foundation of conservation thinking. It's important to realize that it's not just WWF. There, there are several very big conservation organizations in the world. Um, the biggest has a turnover of over a billion dollars, $1,000 million every year, for instance. So there's huge resources available. And the fundamental ideology remains the same. So in Kenya, for instance, uh, pastoralists herding people, sustainably herding their herds of camels, uh, cows, uh, goats, etc., are being thrown off their pasture lands. The pasture lands are turned into so-called conservation areas, uh, again, for, for, for often for high-end tourism. And this is viewed as an investment by the um, conservation organizations pushing this agenda. It's an investment. It's to do with money. This ideology is very deeply embedded. The idea that the local people can manage their own resources simply doesn't enter the equation. And the idea is that uh, local people are destructive of the environment and they need these uh, usually white incomers, settlers uh, and, and incomers to tell them how to do it. 
and indeed to take control over the land. So the thing boils down to who controls the land. Um, it always comes back to the same thing. And indeed, who who takes the resources of this land, either for their sustainable living by grazing or sustainably hunting, uh, subsistence hunting, this kind of thing, or for something completely different, which is to make profit for somebody else. And that's still very much the driver of the conservation uh, agenda throughout Africa, parts of Asia, and indeed uh, more widely. And this isn't going to help anybody. It's going to destroy the local peoples. It has destroyed many of them. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to destroy them, and it's not going to help. Well, presumably now there's a track record and evidence that these initiatives don't work, that, um, that, that, that they failed. Uh, and why is that not uh, driving policy? Because of the amounts of money and the type of interest involved and also the ideology. I think from my perspective, it starts with the ideology. The ideology is unchanged for uh, 150 years, basically. The ideology says land has to be used in a way which uh, uh, Europeans and their settler descendants uh, think is right. And it can't be used in the way that local peoples, indigenous peoples, have always used it. Uh, and that's very deeply embedded in colonial thinking, and that's uh, underpinned the conservation thinking. So I think it starts with the ideology, but then there are huge amounts of money at stake in all this. You can make huge amounts of money from so-called carbon offsets uh, in, in protected areas for example what what is the particular role of kenya when we look at africa or when there's uh comment and analysis on conservation trends or many different aspects of of questions around the environment kenya seems to feature quite highly and i'm just wondering what position does it hold in the story uh of, of conservation in africa and indeed the environment yes well if you if you think of the uh images of so-called wild Africa. Uh, you think of films like uh, Out of Africa, uh, very, very popular stories. You look at the uh, BBC conservation, wildlife documentaries, Attenborough and all the rest of it. The, the image is very much, you know, the, the African lion chasing down the antelope in an East African plain. It's very much Savo the Savo Park, uh, the Serengeti, which extends in northern Tanzania on the border with Kenya, uh, the Maasai Mara, and so on and so forth. This is the image presented, still presented, as uh, tourism in Kenya. It's, it's a big money spinner. Kenya was the heart of why WWF was formed. Kenyan independence in the early 1960s threatened that vision uh, or apparently threatened that vision so the WWF and other conservation organizations thought and and Kenya is central to this and the new so-called new style of conservation which claims and pretends to involve local people and indeed to be very much done in consultation with those local peoples which is a pretense they, this started life in Kenya it's called the conservancies now, and um, they've taken over huge areas of northern Kenya, and, and that's the model which is going to be supposedly rolled out uh, everywhere else. It's a slightly more subtle model. You don't move in and chuck the people out and, and um, beat them up and kill them uh, if they don't want to go. You do deals with them. Uh, which are contrived and which are always uh, to their um, detriment. Uh, so you deprive them of their ability to um, herd their, their camels or their goats or cows by claiming that they have agreed to some kind of tourist venture in their so-called conservancy. But of course, they're basically being hoodwinked in, into these agreements so Kenya is very much still at the at the center of all this. Uh, in the in the, if you go uh, west of Kenya to the Congo Basin, you find that the 
the strategies are still very much old style. You still go into areas and um, and and kick the people out and beat them up and uh, burn their houses and so on and so forth if um, if they won't get out. And this is still going on in protected areas in the Congo Basin. And it's all underpinned by the outside conservation organizations now, primarily European and, and, and increasingly North American. Yes, this is, this is what, what you talk about, fortress conservation. And I'm, I'm also interested, there seems to be, and I don't know how prevalent this is, but evidence of the, the large conservation organizations working with uh, local paramilitaries, local police, uh, and so forth, to, to move people off the land, and uh, it can be violent. Oh, yes, it's often violent. In the past, it's been e- e- extremely violent, and it still is in many places. Again, if you look at the history of this, you go back to the 1860s United States, the first national parks were created at a time of the so-called Indian Wars. There was... Um, military conflict between the settler society and the indigenous nations that lived in these areas. And in those days, with the weapons available then, sometimes the indigenous peoples actually won. Of course, we remember um, so-called Custer's Last Stand at the so-called Battle of the Little Bighorn, as the settlers called it, when the, the, the European settler armies were were defeated militarily by the indigenous people. So the idea of conquest of the land is has, has always been uh, right at the core of this idea of protected areas uh, and conservation. And as I say, that fundamental notion that the local people are detrimental to the environment and only the outsiders know what should be done with these areas that is still 100 percent in the in the conservationist thinking right right very very shocking really i'd like to talk a little bit about the 30 so-called 30 by 30 but just maybe to get a little bit of an overview cop 15's just finished uh i was wondering what your expectations were and how you parse the outcome it was, I guess, four years ago since uh, COP14. It's uh, quite a while, I guess, in terms of these kinds of uh, developments, I suppose. Uh, I don't know whether the promise of COP14 was met. I think it's important to realize that a lot of these declarations which come out of um, uh, international conferences uh, make very little difference to what's going on on the ground. The idea of 30 by 30 in, in, which which says that thirty percent of the of the globe should be protected in inverted commas by um, twenty thirty uh, is entirely arbitrary. It's a slogan, and the, and and the, and the people who initially started talking about it, it, it admit that the figure is arbitrary. It's just a slogan. An extraordinary scale of activity, though, isn't it? Thirty percent of of the land and the planet, um, you know, compared to Various initiatives that governments might or might not be involved in or international organizations, there cannot be uh, many or any initiatives that have quite that scale of ambition. Yes, it's actually the the ambition is bigger. Uh, 30 by 30 comes from ideas of uh, putting 50 percent of the globe out of out of bounds, the so-called half earth um, and these these are ideas which have been put forward over the last generation or so, primarily by American conservationists uh, that want to take half the globe, sea and land, out of um, uh, basically away from people. And uh, I think thirty by thirty is a slogan which which acknowledges that fifty percent sounds too much, so we'll knock it back a bit to something which might sound a bit more reasonable like 30% but the uh, the ambition is 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 bigger actually so what's what's the well, what would happen if you actually put 30% of the planet out of bounds to people and to their activities is you'd get uh, huge um, land deprivation you'd get mass starvation because land would be taken out of 
food production. And supposedly this is something to do with, uh, you know, enhancing biodiversity and climate change. Well, it's, it, it, a child can see that it doesn't matter how much of the land uh, you take out of industrial pollution sources, so long as there are some of them producing the same amount of industrial pollution, you're not going to make any difference to the climate. So you could take 90% of the globe and say no industrial pollution is going to happen on this 90%. Well, that's fine. But if you've got exactly the same or more industrial pollution coming from the remaining 10%, you've achieved absolutely nothing for climate change. So the, the arguments for this are spurious. They say it's to do with enhancing biodiversity. But as uh, as I said earlier, the primary biodiversity hotspots are on indigenous people's lands, the lands that they have been managing. And that's not accidental. The reason they're there is because the, the in, in, indigenous peoples who live sustainably off the land, whether it's by hunting, herding or small-scale agriculture, need the biodiversity in order to survive. So they actually are enhancing the biodiversity. And it's the industrial industrialization, the industrial nations which are destroying it. And the idea 30 by 30 or half Earth, 50%, comes entirely from the industrial nations. Now, look at Europe. 30% of Europe is not going to be uh, taken away from people and um, so-called rewilded and made into a protected area. So what are they actually looking at? They're looking at primarily Africa again um, and also Asia and to a certain extent South America. This is the problem. It's a, it's a colonial idea that lands in Africa can be taken from the local people for the benefit, supposed benefit, of uh, outsiders, people of fundamentally European descent. That's the colonial, that's the colonial vision, and it's the 30 by 30 vision. So whatever the pronouncements coming out of these conferences, so long as that ideology remains embedded at the core the pronouncements are not going to make any difference at all. So my expectation from the, the various cops is actually extremely low. I think it is possible to argue that if the policies are good on paper, then at least it's a start. And I accept that argument. But it's only a start. Uh, there have been very good policies about indigenous people's lands, for instance, for decades uh, there's a UN declaration on protecting indigenous people's lands, which has been around for 16 years. Um, the WWF has an excellent policy on indigenous peoples, which has been around for, for about 25 years. That's nearly half the total lifespan of WWF itself. It's made absolutely no difference. So unless we can move into the area of challenging the fundamental ideology of this, the pronouncements, the policies, the declarations are, I'm afraid, going to make no difference at all. Well, that's shocking. And when you look in detail, and I think one of the uh, EC, uh, the European Commission spokesperson, said that, and I, I don't know to what extent this is actually embodied in policy or indeed in, in, in the COP, but that, of course, of course, mines, oil, gas, drilling, logging, all of that will still go on in the protected areas. Um, and, and so what, what on earth does it mean to be a protected area? Yes, what does it mean? Well, uh, come back to what I said earlier about the attempted eviction of Bushman peoples from the central Kalahari in Botswana, uh, which was uh, really about making a diamond mine there. What it means is that if you get rid of the local peoples, they can't claim to, they can't stop the diamond mine because they won't be on the ground anymore and they can't claim any of the uh, benefits from the diamond mine because this is ultimately their land. So what you're basically doing is a resource theft. You're saying, we want this land, get the people off, we'll call it conservation, we'll put a fence around it, stop 
ordinary people going in but allowing um, rich tourists and we'll carry on exploiting the resources we find on and under the ground, the timber, the, the, the diamonds, the oil, and so on and so forth. There's an area in northern Tanzania in part of the Ngoro Ngoro area where the peoples are being evicted, Maasai peoples are being evicted as we speak in order to uh, allow it to be sold off as a hunting concession for big game hunting to, to Middle Eastern potentates. So the, uh, the rich people can go there and hunt the big animals. The Maasai can't continue to live where they've always lived, herding their cows sustainably. And uh, this is the core of the problem. The 30 by 30 is going to solve absolutely nothing. And we shouldn't be fooled by the by all the talk that this is somehow rather to do with environmental protection, climate crisis and so on. It isn't. It's to do with money. It's to do with investment. Um, the, the concept of nature-based solutions is, is, again, to do with money and investment. And it's not accidental if you look at the people who are in control of the conservation, the big conservation organizations – uh, and on their boards, they are drawn from the corporate world. They are bankers. Uh, uh, they are from Goldman Sachs. They're from Coca-Cola. They're from the uh, polluting and exploitive industries. So we shouldn't be. It, 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 it's it's a it's a it's. I would call it a contract. It's a contract. Uh, it is saying. We're going to make money out of this, and and nature-based solutions is presented as the great next investment opportunity. So uh, they're saying we're going to make money out of this, but we're going to sell it to the public uh, as something to do with uh, solving the climate problem and solving the biodiversity problem. And so long as we keep pumping in huge amounts of propaganda – and money and wildlife films uh, supporting this ideology, we're going to fool enough people to be able to get away with it. That's what's actually going on. It's like a mass hallucination or something, you know. It, it is. As you say, there's, you know, a, a long, long history of these uh, approaches and evidence and, the, you know, the on the ground of many, many uh, domains. I'm interested to get your sense of, uh, I guess... These conservation trends are embedded over decades and, and hundreds of years, as you say. A recent development has been the climate change, the carbon offsets, and even more recently, oxymoronic, you would almost say, uh, or inconceivable biodiversity offsets. To what extent are these ideas playing a role now in the development of the conservation agenda that we've discussed? Uh, the, the way I look at this is that there are... The, the, they're very smart people in the conservation organizations and they are looking at uh, what the public cares about and then presenting their vision as something which is going to solve this when usually it's absolutely nothing to do with it. So that, that's the way around that I would see it. Uh, things like carbon trading are relatively new. They're not that new, actually. The the idea has been pushed for for at least a generation, and uh, this was going to be the marvelous way that uh, that uh, climate change was going to be addressed. And of course, it's utterly failed. And the schemes are usually spurious, and and if if not outright fake, again, it comes back to money. So. If we, if you look at the, I mean, the, the degree to which this is a kind of mass hallucination is indeed shocking. But you look at how it arises, you look at the history of it, you look at what's taught um, in environmental courses. Is the real history of these um, protected areas taught? Uh, is the fact that these areas were owned in the fullest sense of the word and lived on and in by indigenous peoples and they were actually enhancing the biodiversity. Is that taught? No, it isn't. So a, a, a young person beginning of their career, and of course 
lots of people, everybody wants to help the environmental crisis. Um, young people in particular, obviously, uh, and they have a, an obvious vested interest. So you look at them, how they come into their to the to this career at a junior level and they are full of all kinds of hopes and aspirations and wanting to do a great deal of good as you climb the hierarchy of these organizations you find as i say that they're actually controlled they're not controlled by these uh, people from this kind of background they're controlled by bankers uh, by corporate bosses uh, and it's the biggest corporations it's the polluting corporations it's unilever Coca-Cola, it's it's the uh, energy companies, it's uh, weapons manufacturers, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Now, what yeah. if 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 we look for a moment at what the you know the real the pro the problems which are never stated about climate and where does this environmental pollution really come from? It's coming from the obviously from the rich nations. But it's it's coming from especially from things like military activity, war. Uh, you look at the amount of oil used by uh, by an American uh, cavalry regiment today, an armed you know tanks and so on and so forth, uh, or, or a jet fighter. It's absolutely astronomical. They're not planning to run these things uh, on electricity or batteries. They're not planning to fight their wars on electricity. The idea that the oil is going to be um, run down and finished as a source uh, of energy, I think it's a complete fantasy in the way the world is, is directed at the moment. What's going to happen is the oil is going to be deprived to uh, poor people. Very rich people are going to carry on using it and the military are going to carry on using it. So there's always going to be this need so long as uh, the the nations are constructed in the way they are yeah i think some recent research about the biggest military country in the world the pentagon but more carbon than some developed countries like denmark um but um i'm just wondering what you think should be done um you're talking about we see this and i've talked about this several times in the podcast, the financialization of nature and nature-based solutions, trying to create incentives and so forth. Um, presumably, some protected areas work, or presumably um, they can be designed to be better or even to work very well. Um, but beyond that, what other kinds of policies and so forth do you think we need? And as you say, policies are not enough. Uh, it's about making sure that the execution on the ground. But what are some approaches that you think would be uh, more effective, Stephen? Well, there are many protected areas uh, w w which work extremely well, and they're generally the ones under indigenous management. And they generally have no investment put into them as protected areas at all. So you look at a a satellite map of Amazonia, for instance, you see the areas which are still heavily forested are indigenous territories, uh, and the the deforestation happens outside those territories. So, actually, the solution is extremely simple. You, uh, you in areas which are currently under indigenous control, you leave under indigenous control. Just don't interfere. And uh, you return uh, as much of the land as possible back to indigenous control. The first step is simply stop um, booting these people off their lands. And that's still going on, as I say. So if you, if you stop that, you need an inversion of the ideology. You need people to realize that the, the, the ideology we've been talking about is colonialist directly colonialist and that that needs to be challenged now in real in real life it is being challenged but it's being challenged locally and on the ground so that the for instance the conservancies in northern kenya which i talked about where uh, herding peoples are deprived of their land those same herding peoples 
are, 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 are saying, no, we don't want this anymore. And if necessary, they're cutting their fences, the fences, and they're putting their herds back in land, which has been fenced off for so-called conservation. Because actually, the herders live alongside wildlife as they have done for uh, countless generations without destroying it. So the solution is actually ex extremely simple, but to reach it, it needs uh, acknowledgement that the, the the Western conservation agenda is is a colonial agenda, and that that needs to change. So people here have to acknowledge the fact that all the propaganda they've been told throughout their lives. Look, I'm over 70 years old. Attenborough started his um, his um, wildlife programs uh, back, back in the 50s. Okay, initially he was chasing down animals to take them to London Zoo. But the whole ideology, the out of Africa thing, the BBC wildlife, that's gone on throughout my entire lifetime. It's no wonder that people are are convinced by this propaganda. But we have to unravel that. We have to start acknowledging that that is a, a, a propaganda ideological tool which has led the world. It's not it led the world to the levels of catastrophe and, and environmental crisis that we now face. The environmental organizations which are behind this ideology are not helping the environment. They are part of the problem. And that has to be looked at. That requires, obviously, a huge change in, in psychology and in thinking and all the rest of it. It's not impossible, and it could happen extremely quickly. You look at the, um, for instance, the attitude, public attitudes towards so-called interracial marriages, for example, in the States, well, 50, 60 years ago, most people, most white people were very hostile to the idea. Uh, you look at more recent statistics and within a couple of generations, most white people are no longer hostile to the idea. So you can affect, and you look at the, the history of um, gay rights, for instance, attitudes towards homosexuality, which have changed Huge. Yes, but maybe not. But maybe not such vast sums of money uh, at stake in such an obvious way. That that is that is very true. Yes, uh, money is is the driver. Yes, when it comes to the health of the indigenous peoples movement, what would you say? How healthy is it? What are some reasons for optimism, or or or, or what's your assessment, Stephen? I think that's a, that's a complex question. I think we have to be careful. I mean, there, there is now more acknowledgement. There's an acknowledgement of the problem. When I started in, in this area 50 years ago, um, most people I was talking to were entirely unaware there were indigenous peoples even. People didn't know there were indigenous peoples still in Amazonia, for instance, uh, living entirely sustainably, sometimes with no contact at all with outside society. And there still are such peoples. In, in the West, people didn't know that. Now there's much more awareness that they exist. So that's, that's a positive at the same time, we have to be careful that their uh, problems are not uh, hijacked by the by this colonial agenda. And there are, of course, attempts to do that. Um, Conservation International, which is a massive WWF-sized uh, organization in the based in the United States, routinely has an indigenous person on its board. This is not the uh, the the answer it it's all for show so in in on the one sense the problem people are now more aware of the problem and which it's so it's a time when we have to be careful that the local people on the ground the local indigenous peoples rather than necessarily people who claim to represent them politically and that might 
claim might be justified, it might not be justified. So we have to be careful that it's the people on the ground rather than uh, rather than the political organizations that are, that are going to actually uh, reflect the change. And that, I think, is the hope, actually, for the environment and for whole conservation ideology. It's the people on the ground, local people, who are beginning to stand up to this, who are saying, no, we realize now what's going on. You've been lying to us all along. We're going to take a stand, and we're not going to allow our place to be fenced off and us to be thrown out of it for you know some derisory compensation of a few hundred dollars or a tin roof shack in in, in a hundred or two hundred miles away with a a tiny patch of land on which we can't live there are people who are beginning to stand up for this and i think that is the hope for the future actually we shouldn't look to ngos we should start talking about the truth behind the ideology. The more people are talking about it, the more people are going to realize uh, what's going on. And it's it's going to shock a lot of people. A lot of people are going to get angry because they don't like their prejudices challenged. But that needs to happen. But it's actually on the ground itself. It's local people who are going to challenge this. And I think that diversity of uh, humanity. I am an optimist, actually. I, I believe that the diversity of humanity is, is, is absolutely core to the, to the future of the world and that it, uh, in spite of all the gloom and all the apparent destruction that's gone on and the real destruction that's gone on, that diversity is still there and, uh, and uh, I think we'll come to the come to the fore and that's what will actually solve the environmental crisis that's a great vision Stephen and I I dearly hope you're 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 correct and thank you so much for your time today and sharing with us the fruits of your work and commitment and all the work you've done on this front and uh, I wish you all the best in the future thank you and thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 